It was really an, an honor for me that uh, Matt asked me if I would share the Word of God with you this morning. So I take it really as an honor and a privilege, and I thank you. And I pray that uh, our time this morning, as it's already been a blessing, that it will be a blessing to you, but most importantly, that through the music, through the sharing of the Word of God and our prayers, we'll be honoring to our Lord and Savior, and that's our goal. Um, will you bow with me in prayer before we begin, please? Our Father in heaven, I'm con- keenly aware that we need you for everything. You are our maker, our sustainer, the governor of all life. We look to you for everything. Keenly aware that without your spirit, I'm not going to be able to say the truth of your word. And without your spirit, we will not be able to hear it. So we ask that you be very present in our hearts and our minds this morning as we, as we examine your word and that we, in, we, we want to open ourselves to, to hear what you have to say for us and that you would be in control. And, and this would be a, one more exercise in offering ourselves as living sacrifices to you, O oh Lord. So this we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever started something really well, and then somewhere along the line, stuff goes off course, or it just doesn't work out the way you thought it was supposed to work out? Maybe it was a diet, or maybe it was an exercise program that, you know, you, you started and it just kind of goes off course. Or similarly, maybe it was, uh, maybe you supervise a group of workers or even your own kids, and you started them out on a work project of some sort, whatever it was. You've got them going, and you told them how to do it. You set them straight. As they went along, it looked like everything was in order and everything was working very well. And you went away. Expecting that when you got back, they would be doing the same thing. Unfortunately, when you got back, you realized that something had gone terribly wrong somewhere in between, and they were not doing, uh, you know, they're not doing what they were supposed to be doing. Well, if you've ever, ever had an experience, anything like any of these, then you can relate a little bit to what the Apostle Paul had been going through after his first missionary journey. This is really what he experienced. The Apostle Paul, uh, of course, was commissioned by the Lord himself as an apostle and sent out from the, the, the church in Antioch with uh, Barnabas and, and uh, John Mark and on their first missionary journey. You can read about that in the book of Acts. That's not our text for this morning, by the way. But they went out, and on their first missionary journey... They traveled to a number of places, but they passed through a region in what is today uh, uh, modern Turkey. And that region in Turkey today, is, or in the Bible times, was called Galatia. And as, as Paul passed through Galatia and the other places, he preached clearly the message of Jesus Christ, that salvation is found in 
Christ alone. And as people came to faith in Christ, he established churches there. And he did this. This was his regular pattern wherever he went. Most of the people to whom Paul preached and most of the people who were, uh, were converted or came to faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah were either people of a Jewish background or they were considered uh, God-fearers. Now, a God-fearer was a Gentile who had basically attached himself or herself to the Jewish traditions, to the law, and would worship with the Jews at the synagogues. There were certain regulations about what they could and could not do, and so on, but they had basically adhered to the Jewish faith. Most of the people that came to faith through Paul's ministry were, were of those two categories. Now, I'm sure there were some others as well, but these are the people that he dealt with mostly in establishing his churches. Well, Paul went through this southern region of Galatia on his first missionary trip, and in fact, in his uh, next two missionary trips, he also traveled or at different points through Galatia. This was a, a place that he had a lot of connections with. Going back to the first missionary journey of Paul, then after he concluded that, he went back home to Antioch, He was there for a while, and uh, he got some bad news from the church churches in Galatia. Bad news was that some of the leaders, or there were leaders, people in the churches in Galatia, who were teaching things that weren't right. He Paul had clearly set out salvation in Christ by faith alone. And what was happening, it came to the ears of Paul that there were people in the churches in Galatia who were teaching others that you needed to follow the way of the Jews in order to be saved. They were not teaching salvation by Christ alone. They were teaching, you must follow the precepts and commands of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament law. And the covenant. You must adhere to the traditions of the Jews. You must be circumcised. You must do all of these things to get in the pathway of salvation. And oh yeah, there's Christ too. Okay, That was their message. In other words, basically, to, to be rightly related to God, you needed to be a Jew. That was the teaching that was coming there. And when Paul heard this, he said... I've got to write a letter to these guys. I've got to straighten them out. So he did. And he wrote this letter, which we call the Book of Galatians. And he sent it back to probably be circulated among the various churches that were in that southern region of Galatia. And in the letter, Paul works. He's, he's dealing with that issue that I was just describing there. Basically, teaching them that the, what the teachers were saying there in, in the churches were wrong. That was incorrect. That salvation is by faith in Christ. But fortunately for us, he develops that in a number of different ways and different arguments and things. And we're going to look at one section of that, that letter of, of the book of Galatia this morning, beginning in chapter 3, uh, verse 23, going into the uh, first part, first few verses of chapter 4. 
And it's in this passage here specifically that within that wider context, Paul is helping the Galatian believers to understand what was God's purpose or his design for giving the law in the first place. Now, you might be asking, well, if salvation is by faith alone, then why did God even give the law? What was the purpose of that? That perhaps was one of the questions they were asking. So Paul is addressing some of this in this passage. And basically, we're going to see that Paul is saying here in this passage, the, the effect of the law is to make slaves of us. But the work of Jesus Christ is to free us and to make us his sons in his family. Let's look at the passage, and then we'll come back to that. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into into Christ have put on Christ. And there's this interesting verse here, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Going on into chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. A couple things to say right off on this. First of all, you might be saying, wait a minute, I've heard something like this before in the last couple of years. Somewhere there in Pastor Matt's series on Romans, I think we've done something like this before. And it's true. Actually, if you look at Romans chapter 8 and you read that chapter, there's a, there's a chunk of Romans 8 that's very, very similar to this passage. It's not surprising that the same author might say something very similar to different people. The other thing you might notice about this passage is the clear idea of being sons of God. Okay? And you might be tempted to say, well, I've got to be a little careful here with this. But you might be tempted to say, you know, sons and daughters. Um, and while, if you look at the verse, it said there is no male or female in there. So it's important that we stick with the concept of sonship here. And I'll explain why. But it's also important to recognize that clearly Paul and the Lord says that that encompasses us all. 
And there's something extremely important about the concept of sonship that we'll bring out here. But once again, what's Paul getting at here? He's basically saying that the effect of the law is to make us slaves, to put us in bondage. But the work of Christ is to make us free as, as sons of God, adopted sons of God. Let's just spend the next few minutes unpacking what that means for us and what that means, hopefully, for our lives as we live them out as God's sons. Amazing thing. So what does Paul mean here when he says that the law enslaves us? What, what in the world is he getting at? Paul uses, actually, in the passage that we read, Paul uses three pictures or three illustrations of the function or the purpose of the law. The first picture that he gives us is the law is like a jailer. It's found in in the first verse that we read there. Before faith came, verse 23 We were held captive under the law, imprisoned. There's the language of captivity or imprisonment until the coming faith would be revealed. Another very good way to uh, translate this, it might help us in our mind to understand this picture that that, uh, Paul is using here, would be to say that uh, before faith came, we were held in custody by the law. It's the idea that we're really in kind of a, a prison cell, and, and the law is the custodian of that, and we're held under the law's custody. Um, my family and I, we enjoy watching old reruns of the best Western there ever was, Gunsmoke. You ever, I mean, are you with me on Gunsmoke, most of you anyway? All right. In Gunsmoke... And we, we always watch Marshall Matt Dillon, you know, who almost, not every time, but many, many times, he goes and gets a prisoner, and he'll bring the prisoner in and lock him up in, in his jail. And he'll hand the keys over to the deputies, either Chester or Festus or somebody like that. And they're held in custody. Now, it's just... Paul is just simply saying that just like Marshall Dillon puts people in custody, that's what the law has done for us. Now, that's not just because we've done something bad. That's true. We have done something bad. We deserve it. Anybody know why? Because we're sinful. We've, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So we deserve that in a sense. On the other hand, we're in custody for our own good to protect us. And sometimes Marshall Dillon does that. They'll put them in custody because they've done something bad, but also to protect them from worse people out there. So that's one of the pictures that Paul gives to us. We're in this custody of the law. The second picture is found in in the next verses here, and that is that uh, the the law is in the terms, in the Greek term, I have to use the Greek term here, I'm sorry about that. The law is pictured as a paedagogos. Now what in the world is a Pedagogos. It's related to our English word pedagogy, where we get the term which means teaching in English. However, in the Greek language that Paul wrote in, the pedagogos is not 
necessarily, and it really is not a teacher in the way that we think of teaching. Uh, let's look at the, the verse here. It goes into verse uh, 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. This is the word paedagogos, guardian, is translated in the English Standard Version. I'm not sure what all your translations might say. The law was our guardian until Christ came, our paedagogos, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under uh, paedagogos. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the paedagogos was someone, uh, was a hired person. Sometimes it was a slave in a, in a household. The person was hired or commissioned to supervise the children or a child of that house. And the duties of the paedagogos, whether it was a slave or a hired person, were to, for instance, accompany the child to school and then bring that child back. So I think that's where we get the modern-day understanding of teacher in there. But also, the, the child or children were under the paedagogos as the one that would supervise the conduct of those, those children. Uh, in the, just the everyday things of, of dealing with children and taking care of their needs, that was the paedagogos and his function. Now, perhaps, the, I kind of racked my brain to try to figure out a good modern-day analogy of this. The closest thing that I can think of would be what we might call a nanny in our culture today, something like a nanny. Um, even that doesn't quite work because at least here I'm maybe sexist, I don't know, but it, in my mind I think of a nanny as a woman. Um, maybe it's because of that TV show, a Nanny. But um, anyway, in the ancient world, the Pythagogos was usually not a, a woman. It was probably a man most of the time. So this is the other, uh, the second picture that Paul gives to us here of the function or the purpose of the law. That we are under the, the supervision of this Pythagogos law for us. And there's a function that it has for us in that regard. Now, the third picture that Paul gives is over in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. And this is the one that he opens up just a little bit more than the rest of these. The third metaphor, if you will, is that the law is, is pictured as the steward of a child in a wealthy household. The steward of a child in a wealthy household. Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers. Those are not the same words as paedagogos earlier, although in English it uses the same words. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The, the picture here, again, is that there is a, a young a child, a male heir, in a wealthy Greco-Roman house. This is Paul is drawing on his Greco-Roman world of his day to use this picture. And, and this heir, then, is the rightful heir of his wealthy father. But 
the heir is under the stewardship of someone else until the time when the heir reaches the age of maturity. And that age of maturity, the date of maturity, is set by the father as to when the, the son will come into the full rights of sonship, will, will be marked publicly as, uh, as mature enough now to take on those full rights. So that's the third picture of the, of the law. There are interesting pictures that Paul gives us here. And just to summarize what, what Paul's getting at with all these, these pictures is the common theme here is that the law and, and all these have to do with really some form of bondage or custody that we are under from the law. The law was given to show us that we are in a hopeless condition. The bondage that Paul speaks of is simply the bondage that we feel because of our sin. You know that God's law is holy and righteous, and it was given to us so that we would, we would see and understand that this holy God, creator of the universe, has his standards of what is right and what is wrong. And the law sets out God's absolute standards. And if you and me as sinful people look at those standards and we say, it's not going to happen, then we got it. We're in bondage. Because we realize that the law has got us. We can't do anything. There is no way, in other words, there is no way that you or I, on our own merit, can have the kind of relationship, a right and proper relationship with the holy God, creator of this universe. And the law tells us that. And that's what he's saying. And in that sense, the law holds us in bondage and teaches us our true condition under God. And that was the purpose of it. And that's, that's what Paul is getting at. It, it, it's supposed to drive us to our knees and to say we need help big time. We really, we do. There is no solution for us. None that we can find in ourselves. None that we can find in anyone else in any way. The function of the law was preliminary, kind of like the opening act of the drama of God of salvation. It's kind of, another person said, the law is like the ABCs of of salvation, the elementary teachings, the foundation of, of our understanding of who God is and our need for salvation. So the law is not bad in any way, but Paul is helping the Galatians and helps us understand how we ought to read the law and understand it in that, in that light. So in case you just tuned me out for the last however many minutes, thinking, well, you know, I wasn't born under the law. I'm not a Jew, blah, 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 blah. I can't even give you all the Ten Commandments, so I don't even know the law. I'm not under the law. In case you're thinking this doesn't really have any application to you, let me say that if you are... uh, Let me just put it this way. Apart from Jesus Christ you are in bondage to something. It doesn't, I don't know, there are a lot of different things that we can be in bondage to. But if we do not have Jesus Christ, then we are in some form of bondage. 
because we are trapped in our sin. And there is nothing that you or I can do about it. Most of us know this simple, basic message. People tell us that all world religions are, in one form or another, basically forms of bondage to some form of law, except for biblical Christianity. Because biblical Christianity is not about, like every other religion, what you need to do. Biblical Christianity is about what's already been done for you. It's the only one like that, because Christ is the unique Son of God. So what's the solution? Paul says that God redeemed us. Did you catch that verse? And he brought us into his family as adopted sons. We are freed, redeemed by the work of God. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The language of redemption, again, is drawn from the Greco-Roman world of Paul's time, and it's the language of the marketplace. It's the language of buying and selling. And in this case, since the context is slavery, it's the, it's the language of the buying and the selling of, of slaves in the slave market. And that Paul is saying that God walked into the slave market and paid the price to redeem you from that slavery to the law. It's a powerful image. It was, even, it was made even more powerful to me when uh, three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, excuse me, I was able to travel to Memphis, Tennessee, visiting one of our denomination's um, outreach ministries there. And the pastor there, his name is Francis Tsibukindu, who, by the way, is a, a Ugandan um, and, and I think the issue of slavery was, for obvious reasons, probably very close to his heart. He gave us a, a tour of the city of Memphis. We saw the, uh, you know, Beale Street and where the Memphis Grizzlies play and all the other good stuff about Memphis. And then he came to a point in the city and he said, over there, that's uh, the market where they used to buy and sell slaves. That was a slave trader place. And we didn't get out and look at it. But just, just looking at it from, from the car, there was something in, kind of dark in my heart about just even looking at a place where people, human beings, were bought and sold. I just kind of... Uh. And to, to see that, and it's well known that Memphis was a, a, a very popular place for doing that kind of activity... Anyway, just to have that experience drove this passage or this concept home to me even more, that God, in his great love for us, walked into that slave market and paid the price to free us all. And you know what that price was. It wasn't anything that we could pay. It was only what God could do, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to free us. And then Paul says, not only did he free you out of that bondage to the law, But he has adopted us as sons in his family. I mean, it goes, that's great to be freed, but how did he do it? He did that by purchasing us into his own family through his son, Jesus Christ. An awesome 
concept that Paul draws from, again, his, his world around him. In the Roman Empire, the, this is kind of weird for, for us to think about it from our cultural standpoint, but in the Roman Empire, sons in a family, they were considered, legally speaking, sons were actually the property of the father. In a legal sense, they belonged legally to the father. And a son then, and I'm not saying that all fathers did this, I'm sure they didn't, but legally the, son, the father had the right to actually sell his son if he wanted to. Or he could transfer ownership of his son by adoption to another father or family. And this was sometimes, this was sometimes done. When the, uh, the son was transferred by ownership of adop- by adoption to another one, all ties with his biological family were absolutely cut. But when he went into his new adoptive family, the son became, uh, received the full rights of sonship within that family, including the inheritance rights that would be his through his new adopted father. So uh, while we have a struggle understanding the buying and selling of our sons, that was part of the legal system in the Roman Empire. Um, This is what Paul means when he says here that we were redeemed so that we might receive adoption as sons in God's family. And then he goes on, verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's why I said we have to, we have to keep with the concept of the sonship and recognizing that it includes all of us, male and female, in this, this concept that Paul is working with. So what is this new sonship that we have in God's family? What's it all about? I mean, what, what does it mean for us? The foundation or the thing we have to absolutely understand here is that uh, only in and through Christ Jesus do we become adopted sons of God. You might say, that's, I already knew that, Jeff. Well, chapter 3, verse 26 to 27, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, very simple, No Christ Jesus, no adoption as God's Son. It comes through him and by faith in him. Very simple but foundational point. The Bible in both the Old Testaments and the New Testaments refer many times to Jesus as Son of God. There's this fascinating verse here in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We've just been talking about us as sons, adopted sons, but God sent forth his one and only eternal son to the world. Why? Uh, Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In the ancient world, there was clearly understood, especially among the Jews, that when when Jesus said, I am the son of God, he was saying, I am equal to God. In other words, I am God. 
There's passages in, in the Gospels where Jesus said things like that. For example, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and, the, I and the Father are one. Now, what happened when Jesus said that? The Jews picked up stones to stone him to death. They understood that he was claiming to be God himself. I make this point because it's absolutely essential to understand that our sonships, our sonship as adopted sons in God's family depends completely on the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God that he sent to us. And it, this, uh, the relationship that God the Father has with God the Son, this is, blows me away as I was studying this. What God wants us to do is we get to participate in that relationship between God the Father and God the Son. How? Because through faith in the Son, we become adopted sons as well. And this blows me more away. There are places in the Bible, in the New Testament, where it says that God predestined us for that. That before the creation of the world, that was his plan for us. It's, it's important and it's amazing to realize that we don't, we don't say that... Um, Jesus is the Son of God because we have sons and father, father-son relationship on the earth here, and that's the best thing that we can come up with to figure out what kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. No, it's actually completely the opposite. Our relationship, our father-son relationships on earth are actually shadows, outlines, or even reflections of the true reality of who God is, father-son relationship. See how it's actually the opposite. And the fact that, uh, that Jesus is son of God and was sent forth to redeem us, and that was his job to bring us into his family as adopted sons, and God says you get to participate in that wonderful, eternal relationship that God the Father has with God the Son because you are adopted sons. I'm not saying that we become Jesus. Don't run me out of here, <laughs> okay? Or that we become God. We're Clearly, Paul says, we become adopted into his family through the one true eternal Son of God. It's, it, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing to me. We can share in that relationship, and that's what God wants for us as his people. I originally began thinking about uh, this, this, this message, really trying to emphasize the fact that Jesus is son of God and what that means. And Paul puts that language here in terms of what God is doing in, by sending the law to us to help us understand our, ourselves as sinners and our need for Jesus Christ and that he has brought us into his out of slavery into his into the fellowship of his son the message of this passage then is that we need to keep the son of god jesus christ as the focal point the center stage for our life and our faith as a church and as individuals he must always be there center stage in everything because it's very easy to get off course is it not and that's what happened to the galatians they'd gotten off course a few weeks ago 
I was in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I went, as many of you probably have, you know, I went to see the battleship North Carolina there. I love that thing. That's so cool. The second time I've been there, I'd go back again. <laughs> but when I went there to the battleship North Carolina, I was, you know, going through the tour and everything, and and um, trying to take everything in. And I I noticed that the the ship had very, for its day, very sophisticated navigational equipment, including two gyroscope uh, compasses. Now, I don't really understand a lot about scientific stuff, but the gyroscope compasses, I understood, are extremely accurate compasses. And one of them was located in the exact center of gravity of the battleship to make sure that it was as accurate as possible. Because the, the, the battleship needed to be able to navigate accurately, even in the midst of a, of a battle going on at sea. They knew that you can have all kinds of, all the firepower in the world, but if you get off course, you're no good for anybody. You're going to be firing at the wrong things. We as a church will always stay on course if we keep that compass pointed directly at the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, always. And that's my prayer for us as God's people. We'll never go wrong if we do that. I'll invite you to pray with me, and then I'll invite Matt to come up for our closing song. Lord, it's some of the stuff we've talked about here is difficult to explain and very amazing, but I pray that through your Spirit you will, you will enlighten our minds and our hearts to understand the riches of being part of your family as adopted sons. Truly what you have done for us in so many different ways is amazing, and we will praise you for all eternity. Help us stay on course. Help us worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Help us to keep him as the focal point of our life and our ministry and everything, in every way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.